Amen. Thank you. So I'd encourage you this morning to, uh, if you have a Bible here, to take it and open it to Revelation, the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, uh, chapter 2 this morning. We're starting a series in Revelation, uh, going through just, just chapter 2 and chapter 3 for the next uh, seven weeks. So do that. If you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, we do have ones in the by the Welcome uh, Center there on the bookshelf that are free. Just uh, take it, keep it, it's yours. Uh, but as always, we, we do put the scripture on the screen as well for you to follow along. So Revelation chapter 2 this morning. So um, Marcy and I, uh, my wife and I, we have a few boxes in our storage that are full of letters. <laughs> ones that... Uh, that we wrote to each other while I was in college. She was finishing up um, high school and community college. So I went to college uh, in, in Karenport, Saskatchewan, Southern Saskatchewan at Briarcrest. And so we were separated for the better part of two years. And then we did, I finished off my college the next two years as a married student so that we were together on campus and lived in a basement suite there. But those two years when we were separated, there was a lot of letter writing that went on, and they were super important to us. Uh, they were the key way to keep uh, our relationship not only going, but to keep it vibrant and thriving, because this was the day, I'm going to make myself sound old, but I did turn 50 this week, so I have an excuse. Uh, there was no internet, right? There, I, I didn't have internet as a student. My first year of college, it was the typewriter. <laughs> Can you believe it? I typed all my papers. There were no cell phones. There was like no mobile phones. Long distance calls were super expensive. I remember the, the few times that we had to call, what I would do is I, like if I had to, I really needed to talk to Marcy, I would run down the hall to the pay phone, which was in the stairwell in, our, in my dormitory. I would pick up the phone and I'd dial her collect, and then she would just say no to the charges, we'd hang up, and then she'd phone me right back at that number, because it was way, I remember one time I really, really needed to talk to her. I visited every room in my hallway and collected quarters, and I had stacks of quarters on the phone every minute or so, you know, just to keep pumping the quarters in that thing. It was so expensive. So the mailbox it was, I remember uh, uh, from my dorm, which is on sort of the far end of town, having to walk by the, the post office uh, every day to go to class in the main building. And I would stop every time I passed, whether it would be first thing in the morning or at lunch or on my way back from classes, I'd always stop, check the box. Is there anything from her in there? Is there anything in there? And when there was something in there, I was so excited. By the way, little uh, side note, the postal code at Karenport, Saskatchewan was S0H0S0. So everybody just called it letters, right? Like S-O-H-O-S-O -O -O was the postal code. I'll never forget it because at Bridal College, I mean B Bible College, you know, <laughs> there was so much dating and relationships going on. So the postal code stood for slide over, honey. Oh, slide over. <laughs> so I can sit beside you. <laughs> Nonetheless, I didn't do that because I was engaged to be married and I was so excited to check the mailbox at S-O-H-O-S-O at least three times a day. Revelation 2 and chapter 3 contain seven letters to the seven churches described there. And we're going to go through them one by one. And we, we, uh, we forget that, that this was and continues to be God's key way, an important way for 
for the bridegroom to maintain a vibrant relationship with his bride, the church. That means you, that means me here this morning. These letters are super important. Uh, and we need to be checking in on them, not just once a year. We need to be checking in on these things once, two, three times a day, if that's what it takes. There's this weird relationship that people have with the book of Revelation. Uh, there's one extreme, which is uh, at almost an obsession, beyond fascination, an obsession with the book. And, and so people are continually, all they can talk about is, you know, end time stuff and the rapture and horns and beasts and, what, you know, who, who or what is Gag and Magog and all of those things and speculation and, oh, it's China and Russia and you name it. Like, and they live in that world to the exclusion of everything else. But then there's the other extreme, which is a lot of people avoid Revelation because they just don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to understand this book. And so it's a little freaky at times, the things that are described. And like, I'm not going there. I don't even want to read it. But you, you, you miss out on something very important. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. Revelation 1, 3. Blessed. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Just reading aloud the words of Revelation contains a blessing for your life. We need to take that seriously and, and, and read these letters. Uh, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it, who keep what is written for the time is near. There, there's the key. Not only reading it, and hearing it, but keeping what is written. That's the key to this series as we dive into Revelation 2 this morning, verses 1 through 7. Let's read that text. To the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Why don't we take a moment to pray and let that settle into our hearts. God, today, I want to uh, agree with particularly verse 7, that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so today, uh, Spirit, you are Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of God. You are speaking through your word. And we need ears to hear. So that's what I pray for today. Give us those ears to hear what you are saying to us this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the book of Revelation, just to do a little bit of background work in it before we go through these seven verses, uh, 
is, as the name suggests, revealing. It is a revelation. This is the, God is pulling back the veil on something that he wants us to know. He is revealing something to us. And like other letters in the Bible, you know, you've got books like Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah um, in particular, but a lot of uh, the other prophetic writings, uh, but also in the New Testament, uh, Jesus uh, in Matthew 25 and in Mark 13, Paul in 2 Thessalonians, they all fit into a special genre or category of literature known as apocalyptic literature or writing. So we have to understand what some of the marks are of apocalyptic literature, but let me give you a few that will serve us well, because if we don't understand at least a few things, we can go sideways pretty quick. One is the abundant use of imagery, symbolism, simile, and metaphor. Uh, And it's not unusual in writing. I mean, um, you know, you should read our letters that Marcy and I wrote to one another. like on second thought, no, you <laughs> no, don't read them, don't read them. But there's a lot of things in there that we say to each other that only Marcy and I will understand because we're, we're writing in a very, often a very unusual way that is unique to us. And God is doing the same thing in his letter here. He's, he's using a lot of unusual things uh, to get his point across because he has or wants a, a relationship with us, a deeper one. He wants us to dig and to work at it. So occasionally the images depicted in Revelation are defined within Revelation, but most often they are found elsewhere in the Bible. So you see um, images or, or simile or metaphor, or things like stars or trees or lampstands that are referring to things other than an actual lampstand or stars. It is suggested that there's actually upwards of 550 references to the Old Testament in Revelation. And so we actually need to often look at the Old Testament when we try to understand what's in the New Testament. And as we unfold the whole of Scripture, things that, are, that don't have that much meaning to us in Revelation will suddenly make sense, or they, they could make sense. It's like doing a crossword puzzle. You know, you're stuck on that one word and you have no idea what that clue is. What's the word? What's the word? But you move on from there and you begin picking out the easier ones. Okay, well, I know what that one is, right in the word, yeah, it fits. And as you keep going and as you keep going, all of a sudden, that word that you were stuck on makes sense because the other blanks are filled in. And that's the way revelation is. We have to rely on other words in order sometimes to make sense of what's going on. So, for example, the word like is often repeated in Revelation. I heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet. His face was like the sun shining and so on and so on. So that's one thing about Revelation is its genre. The other thing that we have to understand is that the book is dualistic, meaning it's meant for both a present and a future reading or understanding. So therefore, Revelation is as much about today as it is about a day to come. We, we can't separate those and say it's just all future. To paraphrase uh, Daryl Johnson from his excellent book called Discipleship on the Edge, which is really a book based on Revelation, he says, Revelation seeks to set the present day in light of the unseen realities of the future. In other words, it helps us to make decisions today in light of what's to come. But, but he, he also says this, it seeks to set the present day in light of the invisible realities of the present, meaning that 
Revelation will help tear the veil off of a very uh, present spiritual realm and allow us to see the other side and what's happening right now. So some further background on Revelation. Uh, so we have to understand uh, genre a little bit about uh, why it's written, but also I'm going through this stuff very quickly. Its author, the Apostle John, uh, who I believe also wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, he's the one who wrote Revelation. Uh, John wrote the book while he was sequestered, while he was exiled really on the island of Patmos, which is like uh, in the Mediterranean, um, off the coast of Turkey, I do believe. Uh, so uh, think a first century version of Alcatraz, right? You've got Alcatraz just off the mainland of uh, the United States by down by San Francisco. There you have Patmos just off the coast of Turkey. Um, he was banished there. He was imprisoned, really, put, a, put in exile because of his testimony for Christ. And this is when he received this revelation uh, from Jesus to, the, to these churches. And yet how John came to write it is very unique in contrast to other books of the Bible. So let's begin right at the very beginning. Let's go back to Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, it says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending an angel to his servant, John. So we have an apocalypse. An apocalypse means uh, uh, something is revealed. <laughs> it's an unveiling. It's an apocalypse of God that was given to Jesus. So really the real author of Revelation is Jesus Christ. And he... Got, a, got this apocalypse from God who unveiled it to John, the penman, via an angel. All right? So we got all these layers going on here, but Jesus really is the true author of Revelation. So every letter also has a recipient. There's not just an author, but those who receive it. And in this case, in Revelation, its audience is seven churches. Not six, not eight, but seven. That's going to be important in a moment. These churches existed in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, Ephesus is current-day Izmar, in sort of uh, on the coast in southern Turkey. Now, there were, were there more churches in Asia Minor at that time? More than just seven. Yes, there were. For example, there was the church at Colossae, not mentioned here. Um, so the fact that Jesus addresses seven churches is meant to tell us something because numbers, something to understand about Revelation, numbers are hugely significant in apocalyptic literature. You've got threes, sevens, tens, twelves in particular, or multiples thereof. Uh, seven is the number of creation. It is the number uh, in scripture of completeness or perfection as opposed to six, which is the number of man who was created on the sixth day, very different than seven. 666 in scripture represents the epitome of that which is the opposite of God. And therefore, that Jesus addresses seven churches tells the reader that he is addressing a perfect, he is addressing a perfect representation of churches for all time and for all places. That's important. That's important. J.I. Packer says this, these letters 
were as relevant to the church 300 years ago as they will be if God so delays to those 300 years hence. And John Stott affirms this when he says, the seven churches of Asia, though historical, represent the local churches of all ages and of all lands. And again, to borrow from Daryl Johnson one more time, these are all extremely good uh, theologians and authors and pastors. He says, it turns out that the seven churches of Asia embody every major issue with, with, with which the church has struggled in every age, in every cultural setting. All of that to say, what Jesus reveals to these seven churches is as relevant to Central Community Church today as it was to the churches then. The challenge is whether or not we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. That's the challenge. So let's get into the text. All right, all of that is background. Let's get into the text. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's just keep that up as we dig into this a little bit. All seven letters start in similar fashion. They each begin with a greeting to the angel of each church and then give a description of Jesus that builds upon a vision of Jesus that John saw in chapter 1. I love Revelation chapter 1. The vision that John had of Jesus was spectacular. It was so spectacular that John didn't know what to do with it. He just fell on his face as though dead. He just, it was so overwhelming and so glorious. And each letter actually builds on that vision that John had back in chapter 1. It's amazing. So what do we know, first of all, about Ephesus? It's, it's written to the church at Ephesus. Well, the gospel was introduced to the city of Ephesus by uh, a couple, Pris Priscilla and Aquila. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Um, Apollos joined them shortly thereafter, and Paul stopped by briefly on his second missionary journey. But then he came back, and he spent three years establishing this church. It was the longest that Paul had ever stayed in one place while he was establishing churches throughout Asia Minor and other places. Three years. And during those three years, he mentored a young man named Timothy, his protege, who served as the pastor at Ephesus after Paul left. Uh, Paul was setting him up for success and telling him, this is what you must do as the overseer of this congregation. So when you read 1st and 2nd Timothy, you under, think Ephesus because this was the context. And, after, uh, and later on after Timothy, John, this John who wrote Revelation, he did the same. He was the pastor at Ephesus before he was sent to Patmos. So that's the church of Ephesus. But, to, but what or who then is the angel of the church? We've got to talk about this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. So there's three commonly held views as to who this angel was. First of all, it could be a reference to an angelic being, a literal angel who is responsible for this church. Secondly, it, uh, it has sometimes been interpreted as a reference to the pastor of the church or the, the, like the, the main teacher at the church, the teaching pastor, the lead guy, whatever you want to call him, uh, because uh, the Greek word for angel is the word angelos. And angelos simply means messenger. But you see throughout all, all, all scripture that God used 
literal angelic beings to give important messages to people and to groups of people. I mean, we just went through Christmas. You got the angel Gabriel who gave really important messages to Zachariah, Elizabeth, Mary, the shepherds. It was an actual angelic being, right? But the, the, a second interpretation is, well, it could be to the overseer, to the teaching pastor, the messenger of this church, which would be Paul, Timothy, John. The third one, uh, interpretation or commonly held view, is that it's a reference to the sort of the, the ethos of the church, the general ethos, the, its angelness, so to speak. It had an angel-like vibe, right? Maybe they had extra good coffee or something. They, they served Starbucks instead of Seattle's best, so they had this angelic vibe. I don't know. Amen? There we go. It's all in the coffee, isn't it? I think angel is a reference to an actual angel, an angelic being. And so a couple of reasons for that. First, in chapter 1, if you go back to verse 20, we're told that Jesus holds... Seven, and it's repeated here in chapter 2. He holds seven stars in his right hand and that the stars are seven angels of the seven churches. Uh, stars is being used metaphorically to speak of angels and angel is not being used metaphorically to speak of anything else, which is supported, secondly, by the fact that in the rest of the book, in Revelation, angels always refer to angelic beings and to nothing else. There's no, this is really not open for interpretation. So I'd like to sort of keep it consistent and say that angels are angels. All right? Um, now, as people, hopefully, who hold to the belief that angels actually exist and serve a ministry role in the kingdom of God, uh, is it difficult to believe that angels may serve a purpose and responsibility over local ministries as well. I don't think it's hard to believe that. I mean, I believe that angels exist. In scriptures, it says that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So therefore, don't be afraid to entertain strangers because in doing so, some people have actually entertained angels without even realizing it. I had a conversation on Monday with somebody in the coffee shop over at Hemlock. And uh, this, this woman was convinced that she had been visited by an angel that weekend. And I totally engaged her in that. I didn't think, well, you're crazy. I'm like, no. I, so I started quoting scripture. And I says, you know what? Angels are ministering spirits to send those who will inherit salvation. You believe in Jesus? I believe that this very well could have been an angel that showed up and visited you. She was so encouraged. She was just beaming with joy on Monday morning about what she was convinced was an angel who visited her. I'm like, wow, good for you. That, that is fascinating. So if... If therefore, you know, if this is true, that angels not only ministering spirits to people individually, could they oversee entire ministries and be responsible for a church and give messages to a church? Um, I, I believe that, you know, an angel of the local church is as much for, uh, you know, for the people in the church itself, right? So like Paul in 1 Corinthians says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Later in the same letter, he says that, Women are to have a symbol of authority in their heads because of the angels. So he talks about, like Paul talks about this in other places as well. So if you disagree with me um, and you believe that uh, angel is reference to uh, uh, the passenger, messenger, teacher of the local church, I'll take that because I think I'm rather angelic, don't you? <laughs> Just saying. Not. After addressing the angel, Jesus is described as holding 
seven stars in his right hand and walking among the seven golden lampstands. And so when we go back to chapter one, if you read that, you will learn that lampstands is a reference to the churches themselves, which makes sense because um, Christians, Jesus said, are to be a light in the world. So for the churches to be called lampstands is, is, makes total sense. Churches made up of Christians who are the light of the world are a witness to the world. They are a city on a hill full of bright light not to be covered. It's who we are. We're lampstands. And as we already know that the stars refer to angels, but that Jesus holds these angels or these stars in his right hand tells us that Jesus is the one who has supreme authority over all the churches for all time. Whenever the right hand of God is referred to in Scripture, it means his absolute authority and power and control. Simply put, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, said Peter. The church is his bride and he loves her and he purchased her by the shedding of his blood for her. And as Paul wrote in Colossians 1, Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Friends, we have to have this view in mind as we read Revelation that Jesus is the one in charge. So what this means for us is that Jesus is in charge of this ministry. Everyone here at Central, from the elders and the staff and on down to ministry leaders, to every last person who is sitting here this morning, serve at his good pleasure and we take our marching orders from him. All authority in heaven and earth is his and therefore any authority that I have or that you might have in this place this morning has been granted. It's on loan by him to us. That's the only reason that I have anything to say this morning is because Jesus has given that to me and he can take it away at any moment. Do we believe that? The authority that Jesus possesses over the church helps us make sense of his warning given later on. We're going to talk about that. But if you missed it, please notice that Jesus doesn't rule and have authority from uh, far off, from a distance. But it says that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus is described as being in the middle of the lampstands. It is such a beautiful picture. Is it a picture... Uh, that he cares. A picture of intimacy and insight that nothing is hidden. There's no secrets. He knows what's going on. He isn't absent. Jesus is here right now. He walks among us by his spirit. He knows what we're doing. He sees what's in our lives. It it's, can be a scary thing, but I think mostly it's a comforting thing. And so I hope today brings comfort to you, but also brings challenge and conviction to you knowing that Jesus is here in the middle of us. And because he's here and because nothing is hidden from him, he begins uh, verses two and three by saying this. He says, I know. So let's move on to verses two and three. He says, I know. Jesus knows. 
He knows what's going on. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Let's stop there before we get to verse six. This isn't, Jesus isn't flattering this church. He's actually commending them. This is, the church in Ephesus was a great church in so many ways. I, I know of your patient endurance for my sake. I know that you've called those people out who claim to be apostles, but they're teaching garbage. I know that you continue to work and you haven't grown weary. I know this. Well done. Good job. Later in verse 6, I, th- I think it's on the screen, he says, yet, I, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Strong language. We don't know exactly who this group was. Uh, some believe it refers to an early disciple in the book of Acts who was leading the church astray at that time with false teaching, Nicholas, the Nicolaitans. Uh, it, it obviously had to do with, with false teaching, things that were not right in the church. The Ephesians hated this work as much as Jesus hates that. And yet there's something else that Jesus knows of this church that follows his commendation. And that's in verse four. So let's look there. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I have this against you. Sobering words, isn't it? To hear that from Jesus, I have something against you. Like he doesn't pull any punches. (laughs) No passive aggressive nature in Jesus. He says it like it is. But he loves us so much. He said, I commend you for all that you do, but there's something that is casting a shadow over all of it. And that is that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You abandoned the love. So what is this abandoned love? Well, it can't be a reference to the truth of, of, of God's word because they were dedicated to the defense of God's word. They, they knew truth from error and they stood by it fiercely. They protected the truth of God's word. It also can't be a reference to the name of Jesus because it's, the scripture says they were enduring patiently for his name's sake. So they were true to the name of Jesus. What then does it mean? I mean, these people were busy doing the work of Jesus. They were in the name of Jesus for the sake of Jesus. So what did they abandon? The answer is their love of Jesus. Not the things of Jesus, but for Jesus himself. They persevered. They fought the good fight. They stood up for sound doctrine. They put themselves in places of great discomfort all the while not loving Jesus like they used to, which I'm sure spilled over into a lack of love eventually for each other. And as soon as that happens, friends, as soon as that happens, we lose our first love, our love for Jesus, and we lose our love for one another as a result. That's the first sign that our witness is being killed and that the church is dying. Because all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another and love for one another springboards from our love for Jesus. So as we embark on a new year, I wonder about me and I wonder about you. I wonder about us. We can get so busy in the things of God. I know I can. Last year, I banked so many hours, and I don't say that with pride. I say that to my shame. 
And quite often what goes first is my love and relationship for Jesus. Not for ministry. I love doing ministry. I love meeting people's needs. I love preaching. I love all of these things. But my relationship for Jesus can certainly grow cold. And at times it, it has. And, I, and my sister, um, I didn't know this till like uh, January 1st or December 31st, I think it was. She reached out to all, all of us. There's four, four siblings. And uh, she said, uh, guys, uh, I made a promise to mom before she died that I would keep us together and talking about things not just related to the weather and our jobs. And so she said, would you join me in reading, doing a Bible reading plan this year of a devotional and reading through scriptures? It was, it's a Nikki Gumbel 365-day reading plan on uh, Uversion uh, Bible app, right? So we can see each other's progress, who's done what, we can make comments, and it's so cool uh, for me to, uh, to hear about some of the fears that my sister has. Like she's six and a half years older than me. She's the oldest in the family, and somebody that is dealing with insecurities and spiritual things that I had no clue about. It's awesome. And she's hoping that it'll deepen our relationship, our love for Jesus and uh, for each other. And I think it's already having that effect. Uh, So we're praying uh, for my one brother who's not participating, but all the rest are and our spouses. It's awesome. You see, we can, we can do all kinds of good things. You can be a youth leader, a preacher, serve in ministry. And it's possible to do great things for God motivated by no love for God at all. But motivated just for simply doing things. And Jesus said, you know, to those um, in Matthew chapter 7, he, he spoke directly to those who prophesied in his name. They drove out demons. They did miraculous things all in the name of Jesus. He said to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. You have no relationship with me. You're using my name and that's about it. Of the religious leaders of his day, Jesus said, you know, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Ephesus was going down the same path. And Jesus saw it. And my question is, are we? Are we going down that path? One day Jesus was was asked, of all the commandments given, which is the greatest? And without hesitation, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's the very first thing we're supposed to do is love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Without the love of Jesus, nothing else matters. Which is why he said later in the upper room to his 12, he said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I'm gonna leave you guys. I'm gonna die I'm going for your sin. I'm going to be raised from the dead and then I'm gonna ascend back to the right hand of the Father. And please, guys, don't forget to abide in my love. That's the first priority you have. Make it your home. Live there. It's, it's worth noting um, that the Apostle Paul ends his letter to Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus, by writing this. Chapter 6, verse 24, the very last thing he said. Grace be with, you, with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That's what it's all about. Because everything else springs from there. 
But now, sadly, some 40 years later, this same church that the, the apostle told them to love the Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible, love Jesus, love Jesus, and Jesus declared that they had abandoned their love for him. So with the time that I have remaining here, I want to address just this one all-important question. How do we recapture a love for Jesus that maybe was ours at one time, but has since been abandoned? And so if that's you, if that's me, as it is, let's uh, let the Word of God speak to us. Uh, Jesus actually gives us the answer in the couple of verses we have remaining, particularly verse 5. Let's read that. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there's three things. First of all, Jesus said to reclaim this love, we need to remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. In other words, remember the good old days? (laughs) It's okay to reminisce. In fact, we should. Jesus is telling us to go back a few years when we first fell in love with him. What was that like? Can you remember? Can you remember a time when you just couldn't get enough of Jesus? (laughs) I think about when I was in, in Bible college and I would come home and visit Marcy on the weekends and we would sit together and I would talk to her for hours about what I was learning in the Word and how much I loved my studies, and I, was, I loved Jesus, and I would tell her about it over and over again. I, I had, to, as I was preparing, I had to go back and remember that time. How much do we talk about with those closest to us about our love for Jesus? Whether they're followers of Jesus or not, particularly if they're not followers, if, if people in our neighborhoods that we invite in for coffee or meals or we just interact with as we're mowing the lawn and all that, we talk about our love for Jesus like it's just something we do. They're, it's natural to us. They're going to go, wow, like what is this all about? Maybe I should check out that guy's faith. Maybe I should go to her women's group. What are they learning there? This is amazing. Can you remember a time when you lived with reckless abandon for the sake of Jesus? When a time where the things of the world weren't pursued ahead of Jesus? A time where your faith was, wasn't so safe, <laughs> so domesticated, where you were a little risky, where little things didn't send you through the roof? Like I had to go without Wi-Fi for 10 minutes or I got a scratch in my car. I'm not preaching to myself or anything. (laughs) Marcy knows me. I can go through the roof over the little things. It's ridiculous. Can you remember a time when your walk with Jesus wasn't so much about doctrine and dogma and and, and, and all of getting getting the, the theology just right as it was about the person of Jesus? Can you remember that time? The Apostle Peter, he wrote to uh, his listeners a letter and he said this, 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. He was commending the church. Though you do not see him now, you believed in him and rejoice with joy that, it, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Can you remember a time like that where 
Even though you've never seen Jesus, you loved him so much, you're filled with so much joy that it just comes through with glory. Perhaps you have to go back decades, if, if that's the case, go back. Go back to that mission trip as a youth where you walked with unabashed faith in Jesus. Go back to a summer camp experience when you were a child where it was all about learning and sharing Jesus and singing those songs around the campfire. Go back to that time to a hardship in your life where your total dependence was on Jesus. And don't forget it. So can I ask you again, can you? Can you remember? Um, for me, one of, a, a, a key time, not only um, a Bible college, but also late high school when I was mentored by a person who's very important in my life still, then Bible college. Then there were sure there was experiences and difficulties along the way where our relationship, my relationship with Jesus was just so alive and so real. But I go back to a key moment in my life in 2007 where I made a trip with, uh, with MB Mission, Mennonite Brethren Missions and Services, now called Multiply. They invited me on a trip to Peru. And we stayed at a resort on the coast, right, just right at the border of Ecuador and Peru, in this rustic um, resort where all of our missionaries in Latin America and South America were invited to one place. Uh, to not only retreat and be refreshed, but to consult and to learn. And we had a teacher who flew in from Germany to teach every day, and every missionary had a chance to share testimonies and their story of what God was doing on the field through them. And my life was changed. I came back from that experience talking about the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit like I had never experienced before. And people in the church at that time noticed, and so did the enemy, People told me to stop talking so much about the Holy Spirit and talk, you know. We got to go back to times like that. And if you can't remember, why not begin making memories today? We're early in 2020. So you can look back in 2025 and you can remember your love for Jesus that you established this year. You see, there's two ways to, to start a new year. You can just look ahead and go, these are my goals and this is what I want to do. Or you can look back to spur you on to greater things and to remember, let's not forget to do both. Yes, we need to move forward in our faith. And part of that is springboarding from what God has done in our lives back then. Remember. The call to remember is followed by a call, secondly, to repent. Repent of what? Well, first off, repent of abandoning the love that you had at one time for Jesus. You need to say sorry to him for that, for neglecting the relationship of not guarding our hearts and minds and allowing other things, even good things, to get in the way of our love for Jesus. We need to repent of allowing busyness or the pursuit of stuff or the craving of power to become all-important. We need to repent of being more like a Martha, sorry Martha, <laughs> um, distracted, worried, busy than Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus and, and just loved to listen to him. Right? Connected to this may be the repentance of ongoing sin. And there is nothing 
nothing that will hinder our love for Jesus more than practicing sin and being unrepentant of that over and over. Doing those things, whatever it is for you, will absolutely suck the life and the passion out of you, especially your passion and your love for Jesus. You see, it isn't as much our lack of love for Jesus that leads to sin as much as it is the sin that we love that leads to a lack of love and passion for Jesus. And and you know what? When, When we do this over and over again and we're unrepentant, what it does is sin actually grieves the Holy Spirit and quenches his work in our life. And what is the first fruit of the Spirit of God? Say it. Love. Our love for Jesus grows cold when sin is more important. And the Holy Spirit can't do anything in our lives as a result. So I want to say this morning, deal with it. Whatever it is, deal with it. It's scary for sure, but let not your motivation be the punishment, but rather the restored intimacy with Jesus that you'll experience as a result of saying no to that and yes to a relationship with with Christ. Perhaps though, what you need to repent of is not a sin of commission, the things that you're doing that are wrong, but rather a sin of omission, the things that you should be doing, but you're not. You see, After Peter messed up, the apostle Peter, he messed up big time. He denied Jesus to the point of, I don't even know that guy. And he was called on it. The rooster crowed two times after he denied him three times. And he wept bitterly. And Jesus came back to him later after he was raised from the dead. And he said, Peter, what was his question? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him then, well, sing kumbaya. (laughs) No. Feed my lambs. What Jesus said to him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, well, then, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And at this time, Peter was kind of hurt, but he was getting the point, and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to them, well, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. Peter, you have something to do. I called you to be a fisherman of men, not of fish. And you've gone back to the fish. You're just out there fishing. And I want to ask you, are you this morning just fishing? Is what you're doing just for you? It's to get away, your own pleasure, what brings you peace and joy and relaxation? Or are you engaging in the call of God on your life, same as it is on mine, to be fishers of men and women and children, that they might be brought into the kingdom of God? That It is quite possible that Jesus is calling you to something right now, but your resistance to it is dampening your love for him. So think about it. Think about it. I want to challenge you with that. But uh, another thing that we need to repent of maybe is uh, that our love for Jesus is being dampened because we're choosing not to extend love to another person. And the Lord has been speaking to me on this within my own family. Because John also wrote this, in 1 John, anyone who does not 
love does not know God because God is love. If anyone says, I love God and hates a brother or a sister, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so if your love for Jesus is going cold, maybe it's because you're hating someone. And so maybe you need to go home from here today and pick up the phone and say, hey, I haven't loved you. Is this getting a little too intense? <laughs> Third, I got to keep moving. Uh, remember, repent, and then return. We need to return, Jesus said, to the works that we did at first. So, this is a little bit confusing and maybe bothers you a little bit because Jesus said uh, in verse 2, I know your works. But in verse 4, he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you did at first. So how can he call us to do the works we did at first if maybe those are the things that cause us not to love him to begin with? And now he says, return to those works. <laughs> so what's up with this? How do we reconcile that? First thing we need to note is that the practices of this church was not what Jesus, like he didn't have anything against those things. What he had against them was the motive behind them. Their love for Jesus was not the impulse for their activity. All of the good things that we're doing were motivated for other reasons and not their love for Jesus. So he said, get back to your love and then carry on with doing these good things. We're not told exactly what they all are, but maybe you or I have abandoned a time of solitude just to be with Jesus alone, where we fast or pray or have a time of worship by ourselves, or we make a commitment to simplicity or sacrificial giving or saying no to something and yes to another. Whatever it was, the works that kindled their love for Jesus and, uh, you know, uh, they needed to get back to those things with the right motivation because motivation matters vitally to God. Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, he said, you know what? I could speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if I have not love, it's, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I could have all kinds of prophetic powers and understand everything, mysteries, knowledge, and f I have faith to even tell a mountain to move, but if I have not love, I am nothing. I can give away all I have. I can deliver up my body to be burned. I can be a martyr. We see quite a bit of that language these days, don't we? I can be a martyr for Jesus, but if I have not love, it gains me or anyone else nothing. There's a movie called The Two Popes, and, and one of them said something that is so significant. He said, truth is vital. But without love, it is unbearable. Truth is vital, but without love, it is unbearable. And Jesus knew that the Ephesians were committed to truth, but that their commitment to truth was void of love. And that matters to Jesus. It matters so much. It matters so much, in fact, that in verse 5, he says, If you do not repent of your lack of love for me, I will remove your lampstand from its place. Listen, friends. In Canada today, there are between three and 400 churches every year that shut down. And I wonder how many of those shut down because of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That he's removed them. 
He's removed their candlestick, their candle, their stand, because of their lack of love for him. Because a church that has no love for Jesus is of no use to Jesus, so he just simply takes them out. Wow. Let that not be said of us. Let's close with verse 7. 2 verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What is the promise to those who remember, repent, and return to their first love? They will be granted to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, the very last chapters of Revelation, where the tree of life at the beginning was in the middle of the garden, but its way was blocked because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But Jesus, through his death, the shed blood, his resurrection and his ascension, has removed the block so that we can experience the tree of life. And what then is the tree of life? Jesus said, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Jesus says, I am that tree of life. Return to me. And the way will be removed for you to have full fellowship with me, to experience the fullness of my kingdom now and in a time to come. Come to me and eat and drink. He invites us. And therefore, his promise to first love lovers is more of himself and forevermore himself. And who wouldn't want to eat from that tree? Amen? I invite you this morning to eat of the tree of life. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it's been a, f- a full teaching. Thank you for the patience of my listeners here today. But Lord, we need ears to hear what your spirit is saying. What, what you've said to us this morning can just quickly fall on deaf ears. The moment we leave here, may it not be, Lord. Would you cement these truths into our hearts by your spirit today? so that we might be changed, that we might uh, remember, repent, and return to our first love. Lord, kindle that within us, a deep desire to know you, to know you, and have everything else springboard from there. And all of God's people said, Amen.